The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today it is my absolute honor and pleasure to welcome Lori David. Lori is an author and producer. You may have remembered her from seeing her on many major networks. She's been on the Oprah Winfrey Show, Good Morning America, the Today Show. She's a regular blogger on Huffington Post. She works on a variety of environmental food and agriculture issues, Her most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, is The Family Dinner, Great Ways to Connect with Your Kids, One Meal at a Time. She was also a producer, however, on the 2006 Academy Award-winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. And I think what is a great honor, Lori, is that you've been honored with the Audubon Society's Rachel Carson Award, the Feminist Majority's Eleanor Roosevelt Award, and the Natural Resources Defense Council Forces for Nature Award. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm excited to talk about some of my favorite topics. Absolutely, and it's such a wonderful web. We're actually going to be talking about two books. I misstated when I said this was your most recent book. Your most recent book is A Little Gem, which was your idea to publish, and it basically is a recounting of the prince's speech on the future of food, and it's a perfect jump-off from the family dinner. So I have to ask you, first of all, you're a producer and an author, How did you get interested in food? Well, you know, I think the same way a lot of people get interested in food, when you have to start feeding your kids, Uh you have to start coming up with dinner every night. And I just basically, about two years ago, had an epiphany sitting at my kitchen table. I was, uh, it was, dessert was over, both my teenage daughters were still sitting there, and I looked up and I was amazed that they were talking to me. I mean, they, they could have left the table about ten minutes sooner. And I realized how powerful this ritual was. And it was a ritual that I had been doing in my house five nights a week for over a decade. And here I was reaping the benefits of it now that my kids were older. So that's what inspired me to do the book because it didn't happen, you know, sort of by itself. It happened because, number one, I was desperate for some cozy family moments. And number two, I realized I had to create them. Number three, I had to feed everybody anyway. Everyone has to eat. So I decided to put my focus on dinner and over the course of time came up with all these great ways to make it fun. And the the book, The Family Dinner, is filled with them. And it's not just about cooking healthy food and delicious food, but it's also about conversation, which for some people is just as challenging as figuring out what to make. So the book is filled with a lot of the ideas that um, we came up with and games we played sitting around the table to get everybody engaged and relaxed and having fun. Well, it's not everyone that recognizes the importance of sitting down to dinner early enough to reap those benefits. Right. So congratulations for recognizing that early But you see, on. my point is that I didn't do it because I knew the research on the issue, which, by the way, there is a ton of research yes. saying this is the single most important thing you can do with your kids, bar none. It's more important than soccer practice or art class or even church and temple. The research bears this out. I didn't know any of that. I actually did this for myself. 
Yeah. Because I really wanted some some happy memories. And parenting is challenging. And it wasn't that much fun when my kids were little. And I was like, this is going to be a long slog if I can't, you know, get some joy in the in the middle of the day here. And that's why I started doing it. And it wasn't until I was writing the book that I realized that there was so much research done on it. And And by the way, you know, all the things that our parents use to civilize children happen at the dinner table. That's right. Where do kids learn vocabulary? They learn it at the table in conversation. With At the table, they learn how to listen, and they learn debating skills, and they learn your values, and they build self-esteem. All these things happen at the table. And, you know, I'm seeing more and more that the more we become a technological society, the less we're spending time with each other. And if we're not sitting down at the table, if we're not stopping, okay, and saying no screens, no computers, everything comes off. We come together as a family and we're going to have a dinner together, a real dinner with, you know, where we look at each other and talk. If we're not doing that, when are we purposely being a family? That's right. I loved your dedication, actually. You dedicated the book to your grandmother, Grandma Minnie, and you say, who never made a family dinner where she didn't forget a side dish in the oven, and also to your daughters who helped teach you the importance of sitting down to dinner. What I got from that dedication is that it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, you can forget a dish. It doesn't matter. The fact is we're all together. And I also have to tell you that as a dietitian who's done a whole lot of work on food safety, you couldn't have had a better photograph for that first page turned as a child washing their hands. So not only are we learning to be members of a civic society, but we're also learning the basic tenets of public health. Exactly. And manners. And portion size, by the way, and developing our palate. Okay, there's so many things to talk about. You, in your, in this one, this one question, you know, you brought up so many things that I wanna, I wanna address. First of all, we have to take the, this pressure off of ourselves about what dinner actually is. It doesn't have to be three courses. It can be soup and a salad. It can, you know, you can make a pot of black bean soup at the beginning of the week and you can find all kinds of different ways to serve that during the week. So it could be chopped a kale into scrambled eggs. That's dinner, right? Yes. So let's take the pressure off of us on what dinner is. And of course, a lot of people do do takeout. And if you have to do takeout, that can be dinner too. Take it out of the plastic and put it in bowls and light a can and sit down together. That's the most important thing is the sitting down. I think we get really, you know, waylaid when we're when we're eating in front of a computer or we're standing at a counter or we're microwaving food or we're dashing into a car. So that's a big piece of it is to take the pressure off of yourself and don't beat yourself up over what you're serving every single night. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. I can't remember the 10 other things that you made. <laughs> that's okay. Right we'll, we will naturally get back to them, I'm sure. But my grandma, Minnie, I do have to say, I did inherit something from her, and she always forgot a, a dish no matter what. It was like clockwork. And my what I've gotten from that is I always forget an ingredient. Oh, it's interesting. It's really uncanny. Like I will follow a recipe, but I'll forget to read it straight through and then start <laughs> cooking. And so I always end up reading it afterwards and finding that I left an ingredient out. So that's well, that, what my grandma Minnie passed on to me. That, that almost leads to great dinnertime conversation because <laughs> then everyone can become a sleuth at the table and you know try to figure out what did mom eliminate this time. Exactly. Well, that is one of the games that we play is that guess what's in the food. So that's a fun thing when you have little kids is to go around the table, say you're, you're serving soup, for everybody to try to guess an ingredient. And that was another point I wanted to make, which is the palate thing. 
it's so important. In the old days, they used to be that maxim that you everybody you had to clean your plate, right? But we know that that is not a good thing anymore. But the rule that is good, that is important, that needs to be enforced, is that everyone has to try everything. And this is a way for kids to do themselves a favor, which is that it can take 10 to 12 times tasting something before you develop a palate for it. Right. So if you decide after two tastes you don't like it and then the parents never make you taste it again, you're not giving them a chance to actually, you know, discover that they love it. And this was a perfect example I had served. We made this delicious homemade tomato soup in the summer, and someone's little girl said, I hate tomato soup. And I said, okay, but you just have to taste it. And she didn't want to taste it, but her dad, who had great food manners, insisted she taste it. And, of course, tomato soup was her now her favorite thing, and she <laughs> ate two bowls that night. So we have to make sure that we don't indulge the picky eater by not letting them develop their palate properly. Absolutely. What I loved about this book is, Everything in here is backed up. You've got great references to everything you say about the power of the dinner. But in thinking about your work on environmental issues, this idea that every meal counts, and in the foreword, actually, which was written by a physician, Harvey Karp, he says, a healthy climate depends on the actions of concerned and engaged citizens, and that type of civic consciousness grows directly out of solid family values nurtured around a family table. So it's a perfect marriage of your work. Well, I think so, too. And I and one of the, the things that was so fun for me, I interviewed a ton of people for this book. And throughout the book, there's all these little sidebars. There's one with Bobby Kennedy and Maya Angelou. And, and they all have stories relevant to the family dinner. But I can't tell you how many people I spoke to who said that their social conscience was born from meal after meal after meal, listening to their mom and dad talk and and debate issues or bringing a newspaper article to the table and talking about current events. This is where it gets developed. So this is another great reason for making sure that you have time to sit down and eat meals. And one of the things that I do is that on the Huffington Post every Friday, we have a table talk topic. So we take a news story from the week, we write a short, snappy synopsis, with questions for the table. And you can see it every Friday on the Huffington Post, or you can subscribe to it for free. It will come automatically to your computer. And then you don't have to think about what you're going to talk about that night. So I hope people will take advantage of that. It's brilliant. And just what you were saying about this civic consciousness coming from the table, that is exactly what jumped out to me also from this book. And not only do you interview Bobby Kennedy, but you've got a great picture in here of Bobby Kennedy sitting around the table with his parents, and you can just imagine the chaos that is likely to ensue. But how he spoke about what was expected around the table in terms of contributing to the discussion was fascinating. And I thought of my own family history of dinner time and thought, gosh, I could have been doing so much more. That is one of my points also and one of my goals because I realized that you have a captive audience and I really want my kids to learn you know, more than they were just learning at school. So I always looked at dinner as an opportunity to teach a little bit. And so I always had books at the table or we would play, you know, spelling games or we would I would have a book which had definitions of most misunderstood words and that would be fun. But I think that there's a lesson to be learned if we look back because that story about Robert Kennedy and his family, they used to have to come to dinner with a prepared written bio on a prominent figure. <laughs> exactly. And the kids didn't know who was going to be called that night. So everyone had to be prepared. And they had to memorize poems. 
Right. Right. They had to come to the table. You didn't know when you were going to get called on. And to this day, they all can recite all these poems by heart. Yeah. And dinners were, you know, an incredible experience for them. So I think that should inspire everybody to... I have a couple of chapters in the book about things to talk about at the table and games to play and, and lots of these ideas to get everybody um, trying them out at dinner tonight. Yes, I love that part of the book. I, I love all of it. I also really was struck by a piece of data that you found that we are starved for time with the people that we care about. And you actually have a quote here, 67% of teens in America want to have more time with their parents. They probably don't feel comfortable saying that, but the truth is our kids are hungry for that connectiveness. And as we have more screen interruptions, it becomes more difficult. So here's the takeaway on this topic, which is that they've done a lot of research on how many hours a day kids are spending on some form of a screen, and that Mm -hmm. includes texting, it includes everything. And the number is so shocking that you won't, you know, it's hard to believe, Mm -hmm. but it's eight hours a day on Mm -hmm. some form of a screen. Mm-hmm. So this is the least healthiest thing our kids can be doing, right? Mm-hmm. Eight hours a day on some form of a screen. So here you go. You have an opportunity to have a nice boundary around this time period where you know where the rule in the house is no screens. Okay, so everybody has to put it away, take a break, and our kids need this break. Mm-hmm. And they need our attention too. Mm-hmm. So the rules go for the parents also. No phones at the table. If I, in my house, if I hear a vibrating phone at the table, (laughs) I get the phone. And then I decide when I give it back. And trust me, your kids do not want to hand their phones over. So guess what happens? They stop bringing them to the table. And that means they get a break from it. We all need a break from it. So dinner is the perfect opportunity to enforce that rule. And everyone will be the healthier for it. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Lori David. She's an author and a producer. She's worked on a variety of environmental, food, and agriculture issues. And we are speaking about her wonderful book titled The Family Dinner, Great Ways to Connect with Your Kids, One Meal at a Time. We have to move on to the next book topic. But before we do, I kind of can't leave this book alone. I want to mention that interspersed in this wonderful book. It could be a coffee table book. It can be one of those kitchen table books. It can be something you use as a cookbook. But you have quotations which are quite inspirational interspersed, and I love them. And there's one here that says, enjoy the little things for one day you may look back and realize they were the big things. And I think that it's those little things that we take for granted. And you have a whole section on gratitude and the importance of stating our gratitude We are bathing in a sea of media messages that tell us where we find happiness is with things. And I think by getting our arms around gratitude for what we have, we can maybe help fight that message. I think it's so critically important today. And, you know, gratitude, it's a quote from Wendy Mogul, gratitude is a muscle and it Mm. needs to be exercised. And what better place to exercise it than at the table where there's something very tangible in front of us to be grateful for, the food, but also who prepared the food, Mm -hmm. who shopped for the food, who went to buy it, you know, where did it come from? 
And these are all great table discussions. So we have to hold on to some of the things that worked in the past. We can't leave everything behind. And saying our gratitudes in, in any way, shape, or form is, is a critical thing that um, our families have to do, really. I, I, and I just want to say one other thing before yeah. we leave the family dinner book, that the recipes in this book are phenomenal. And they're healthy food. They're not fancy chef recipes. They're real family food. There's lots of great vegetarian dishes. There's some meat dishes. There's a chapter about Meatless Monday and why everyone should start a ritual, Meatless Monday, or any other day of the week that you want to do it. And I think that's a great topic for a dinner table discussion. Should this family do Meatless Monday and why and what are the pros and cons? Mm-hmm. And I encourage everybody, like you said, I my dream for the book is that they'll cook from it, you'll bring it to the table and read from it, and it will have a million post-its sticking out of it. Absolutely. Mine does already. My copy does. And before we leave the book, I would just like to add something, too. And you have family dinner field trips. Because I, too, Lori, care very much about the environment. And in my work with children, what I've learned is that they naturally care about the environment. So introducing these topics now and helping children nurture their love that is innate for the environment, I think, makes sense on so many points. The family dinner field trips are terrific. You identify places to go with your children to learn about food. And I'll tell you my favorite dinner spot, which I have to share just because, you know, we're sharing all about our dinner stories. My husband used to work 24 hours at a time, and so I was left to be a single parent on those days. And I had a good friend whose husband was a surgeon, and he was gone a lot. And what we used to do is order a pizza and take the pizza down to a creek with our kids when they were little. And I don't know if my kids remember that as one of their favorite dinner times, but it will go down in history as one of mine. I'm sure they do remember it, and that that's a great idea. And one of the other things people should do is move away from the kitchen table. Put a blanket on the floor of your living room and have a picnic on the floor. Eat outside. Do all those. Eat at the counter if you've never had that. You know, bring stools up and light a candle and set your best china on your counter and eat there. Eat in the dining room if you have one, if you, if you don't do that. I mean, change it up, but, but eating outside is always my favorite. And one really powerful, environmentally important thing everyone could do is to grow something yourself, even yes. if it's a pot of herbs on your windowsill. Nothing excites a child more than to see things grow and to be able to pick something from a pot and bring it into your house and eat it for dinner. It really is important that we get kids connecting back to where food comes from. It doesn't come from a supermarket. It comes from the ground. The, the soil needs to be healthy. We need to really reconnect with that process. And I hope the book will inspire people to do that. And I and I hope on the future of food will inspire people to do that too. I agree with you. Composting, gardening, great recipes, global warming, inspirational quotes, all wonderful. Now, we have to jump away, right? Because our time is limited. I hate to. And just for our listeners, once again, the name of the book is The Family Dinner. Great ways to connect with your kids one meal at a time. The website is thefamilydinnerbook.com. And as Lori mentioned, you can go to the Huffington Post every Friday and get a table talk topic. Great idea. Is there anything else you want to say about this book? Well, there's tons of things I want to say, but we'll have to schedule another interview. Absolutely. Okay, that sounds great. All right, so the future of food. It was actually your idea to take the Prince's speech, the Prince of Wales, who came to the United States May 4th of 2011, 
and I heard snippets of this speech. I was actually on a trip, and I heard pieces of it on the radio, and I longed to hear all of it and wanted all of it collected, and you had the brilliant idea to do so. Why? I was lucky enough to be at that conference, and I sat in the audience, along with a lot of other people who were invited, who knew a lot about these issues. And I sat there and listened to Prince Charles give the speech, and my jaw was open the entire time. Mm -hmm. Because I could not believe, first of all, what other prominent figure is speaking out on these issues so honestly. But also the scope with which he explained our problem. And also the manifesto on what we have to do to solve it. And this is, you know, it was a very visceral experience for me. It was similar to how I felt when I first heard Al Gore's PowerPoint presentation. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, here is a thought leader talking passionately about something he really knows something about. And I didn't know that Prince Charles has been an organic farmer for over a decade or two decades. I didn't know that. I mean, he walks the walk. He has been speaking out on these issues, and he gets made fun of or tossed aside whatever he doesn't care. It was that he gave this speech two days after his son's wedding. We all watched that wedding. I mean, two days. He hadn't even, you know, recovered from it. And he was on a plane to Washington, D.C. to give this speech, and that's how important it was to him. And I just feel if we can get people in this country to get up to speed on this issue, on sustainable agriculture and how we're going to do it, how we're going to feed the world, then we can actually start solving the problems. And the solutions are not that complicated, and that's what's exciting about the speech as well. So I just knew it had to become a book. I had to be small and tangible, and I want to get it into the hands of college students kids um, graduating from health departments and environment and agriculture. I mean, uh, honestly, the issue, if you eat, you should read this book. I agree. What's complicated is changing the mindset that we have been told by publicists. And I want to just mention that there's a short foreword written by Wendell Berry, who's a Kentucky farmer and philosopher, prolific writer. And he says, so many acres, so many bushels per acre were urgently required. We were told by the publicists and politicians to feed the world. But those knowledgeable people now have come forward, mere citizens, but we are up against agricultural industrialists, agribusiness corporations, and the stars of academic and scientific agriculture and every politician of any significance. And before you came on, I was telling you how timely our interview was because I had just been to the University of Missouri's Monsanto Auditorium where I heard Roger Beachy and former Senator Kit Bond tell the audience exactly what Wendell Berry has explained here. We've got to feed the world. How are we going to do it? Well, biotechnology is the only way. And all of these important people, dressed in suits and ties and feeling quite important themselves, were nodding in agreement. And I've got the Prince of Wales book right in front of me. I've got a history of working with organic farmers who are saying, I get better yield with non-GMO seeds. And there was no time for public comment, no time for questions. And this is the difficult situation we're in. I had no idea that the prince was made fun of for talking about the truth, as I see it, about the power of organic agriculture. Did that surprise you when he said that? Well, boy, you you just made so many great points. I think that here's the thing. The system isn't working. It's not working. We're depleting our soil. We have global warming. 
I mean, it's the warmest spring probably is going to be on record, I, I would imagine, mm-hmm. we're having. We've got droughts. We've got flooding. We've got extreme weather. This is all going to affect, you know, how, how and where we grow food. We have an obesity epidemic, right? And this has so much to do with factors relating to pesticides and, and toxins and chemicals in our food and, and the amount of processed food that Americans are eating and the, the overconsumption of meat. Okay, that's a, that's a huge problem, too. So as far as I look at it, the system's not working. So we've got to come up with a solution. And, you know, the solution is sustainable agriculture. It's small, local, regional farms. We have to go back to the way we did it when all food was organic. Right. It was a time when all food was organic. That's what we have to get back to. And we can get back to it. I like the way you drew out important points about the speech, such as accounting for sustainability and looking at those unintended consequences of the industrial agricultural model. Isn't this speech amazing? Yes, it is. It's the kind of book that you have to, you have to read it with a highlighter. I agree. And go through it page by page slowly and, and, and highlight things because I think that, you know, we're moving so fast, we don't really stop consider. And I, this is what I hope the book will do. It will get people to stop and consider. And of course, there is a food movement going on in this country. I'm sure you're seeing it. Do you, are you seeing it? I mean, there is a movement to go back to a, a, a time when, when um, things were, were healthier, right? And, and we have to start protecting our resources mm-hmm. because without healthy soil, we've got nothing. Exactly. Well, it's very difficult to speak out against these tremendous powers around us, and I think that's one of our responsibilities. Learned at the dinner table, again, getting back to this civic consciousness, you were brilliant to take these words that the Prince of Wales brought forth in his talk and put them into a small book that is totally digestible. I'm actually going to bring a copy of it to the chancellor of our university because I want him to see that there is indeed a better way. Well, I'd like to give you ten copies to bring so that he can um, hand them out to some of the professors there. But I, I do want to give some hope to people because there is a way out of this individually as we all work on these issues. And I, you know, I'm a believer that we all have to become activists. We all have to become advocates. I agree. And um, hopefully your listeners will tweet and email and, and buy the book and tell other people to buy the book or buy them for birthday presents or um, Christmas gifts. That's my hope for it. But as individuals, we can opt out of the system where mm-hmm. we can. And that's what I'm a big proponent of, and that's what I do myself. You can grow some food yourself. Even, you know, if you have a balcony, if you have a little square of grass, you can grow some food yourself. You can buy local you can support local farmers. You can Lori, buy organic for the foods that are the most important to buy organic. It's a list of what those are. You can, you know, support this system and be part of the solution. And I think we can we can all do that. And we can all eat less meat because that's a big driver of this too, is how much, you know, why are we using so much antibiotics on our on, in, in our meat system? Lori, why are 70% of stop. the precious antibiotics that we have going to healthy animals. Lori, unfortunately... Get interested in that and read some articles about this and start to say no. And when you do buy meat, 
buy the good stuff. Okay, if you eat a little less, you could less than maybe you can afford the better grass-fed meat, and and be part of the push against the system. And I think that's something we can all do. And I think that message is loud and clear in the prince's speech too. Lori, I, unfortunately, our time is up. I could have you on for another visit or two or three. You're fascinating. I want to thank you so much for being my guest. We've been speaking with Lori David, author and producer, author of The Family Dinner, Great Ways to Connect with Your Kids, One Meal at a Time, and The Prince's Speech on the Future of Food. And you can learn more about that if you go to gracelinks.org or on thefutureoffood.org. In closing, I want to thank Lori. I want to thank our listeners for being here and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Lori. Thank you so much. 